0: You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Well, um, as you can tell, by my biceps, I'm not John Durham. I'm Jordan, and I'm the student pastor here. And uh, so John is letting me preach. And so I'm very excited. John and Jared are, uh, are out of town on mission. And so um, be praying for them and their, their travels and their journey. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation 12. I was told once as a kid that uh, if the youth pastor wants to keep the people's attention while the main guy's out of town, you need to preach on the end times or uh, sex. And so we might get to both. You never know. Um, the Bible's crazy like that and so uh it's it's really real. So uh we're going to be in Revelation 12 um and uh I, I... The first time that I heard this text ever preached, it changed my life. There was an old FCA guy named John Randalls, and he was a hero of the faith uh, to many and one of mine, and, and it really changed my life, and God has continued to massage it deeper into me um, and, and change me, and so I'm very excited to get to preach on this text, and we're in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying... We live in a time like no other in history, and it's no secret. If uh, if you're young in the room and you're like, well, this is, I mean, this seems like the world that we have, and it's always been this way. It's because you're young. Ask somebody old, okay? Ask one of the old timers. Ask your grandparents. Ask somebody with some perspective, and they'll tell you things feel unique right now. These things have happened before, but it seems like they're all focused in and combined and and compiled into a short time and space. We live in a time like uh, like that you could call unprecedented. I'm not saying today that we're living in the end times, but what I am saying is that we live in a unique time. In fact, you could describe it this way: you know, we we have the most information than any other generation, and yet we're the least informed. Um, We're the most woke, yet we're the most morally selective. Uh, we're, We're more connected, and yet we're more lonely. We're the most entertained, and yet we're the most bored. The most privileged, and yet we're the most anxious. The most medicated, and yet the most depressed. And in fact, to tell you the truth, culture is changing so rapidly that generation gaps are becoming generation chasms. And because of that, churches are seeing about only 35% of college students and below. This is hard to believe here in Waco because we have such a great college in town. But about 35% of young people say that religion is even important to their lives. That is half that of their grandparents. And there's no one in another generation coming up to replace them. If you look at the stats, it goes... Old people take Jesus seriously, and then their kids took Jesus kind of seriously, and then the next kids are like, yeah, I like Jesus. And then these last ones are like, maybe, like probably not though. Like statistically speaking, probably not. And yet, and yet, 2020, 2020 came, and if 2020 could be personified, I think it would be like Satan who came to Jesus, or Jesus came to tell Peter that Satan has said, hey, um, I'd like to sift this guy, Peter. I think 2020 uh, has sifted us, has it not? Like it started with Kobe and the, the helicopter crash, and people are asking, people who don't even like sports were asking about eternity and who this guy was, and what is my purpose here, and, and, and why, why did this happen, and is this, is this good or bad? Does good or bad even exist if there's no God? And where do you go after you die? They're asking the questions that count, and some of you may be asking those questions even today. If 2020 could be personified, I mean, look at how technology has, has crippled us socially. And yet, and yet, while, you know, pornography visits sites have gone through the roof, Bible sales have actually skyrocketed in the last 6 months as well. Because here's the reality is that people when they're under pressure, they begin to listen. They start listening and they're open to change when things get difficult. And so that is why you see Christianity thriving on the fringes because God makes us Powerful and perfect in weakness. He comes in and takes over. And the reality is is that there is a revival happening around the world but not here because Christianity here is about being busy on Sunday morning. And I forgot to say this. I'm the youth pastor and so John told me I could say whatever I wanted to um, which means (laughs) including myself, we may may all have some bruised toes this morning. Um, We we live in unprecedented times and, and I think... You can see that around the world in places like China and uh, places like Pakistan and, and others where the, 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 the movement of the church is, is growing rapidly. No matter what is happening, it just seems to thrive under pressure. And that's why I think we're kind of at a fork in the road. We might be the most important generation that has ever existed. Definitely in America, we're the most important generation of the church. Because we're at a crossroads Our churches are about to become museums in the next decade. Or we're going to experience the greatest revival that we've seen in the last century. And it's going to come down to making some decisions. It's going to come down to some choice. It can't be about emotion and it can't be about a personality and it can't be about who is the coolest podcast. It's got to be about Jesus Christ. And so here's the deal. When we look at this text here um, in in Rome in 95 AD, you've got this guy Domitian and Domitian is king over a big space, about 5,000 miles east to west and about 3,000 miles north to south from North Africa, all the way up to uh, um, uh, Northern Europe. And so you you see this guy, Domitian, and he's actually known for a couple of things. He's known for his arrogance and, uh, and, and self-absorption and therefore his cruelty. So he's known for his cruelty and he's known for his insecurity. Okay. Um, he was very insecure. In fact, he would have people see that scroll that he's holding. He had all these monuments made to himself. Um, Domitian would have singers go out before him and they would sing before he would enter into a, 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 an official royal moment. And so they would sing things like, worthy is Domitian to open the scroll. Does that sound familiar? Worthy is Caesar to open the scroll. Worthy is, is the Caesar of the authority and the kingdom and the power. Does that sound familiar? He would have these 24 singers go before him. He had 20 senators murdered that disobeyed him or that disagreed with him. Um, he was corrupt and he even faked victories in battle and had them imprinted on coins that we even have today where it says Domitian conquered this particular space and land and it actually didn't happen quite that way. It was lot messier than that and there wasn't actually victory seen there in fact he is so insecure he has commanded that all people would call him obviously god because that was typical of the caesars but he had an edict put out to his wife that said you will call me my lord and my god guys in the room that ain't gonna work um so uh to sum it all up domitian's a real peach and uh and so when, when you look at Um, this sweetheart that's leading the nation Christians are being heavily persecuted he notices this little Jewish sect that is is taking off and, and it's if you know anything about the book of acts you know that there were officials that were coming to christ there were there were it wasn't just the peasants and the slaves it was also the, these people who were higher up and who uh, uh, their owners and there were people in caesar's own household that were being saved in, in roman officials and guards and centurions and, and pontiffs and all types of political leaders and domitian knows that if he doesn't get this under control it is going to threaten his kingdom and so what does he do he's got cut the head off of the snake to kill it John is the last remaining apostle which means someone who physically walked with Jesus and was actually discipled face to face by Jesus that's what an apostle is John's the last apostle the last living disciple Jesus chose John to be his best friend we know that from other texts and from John's gospel he's known as John the beloved right because he and Jesus were close I think it's interesting that Jesus chose a teenager to be his best friend uh, which shows you that young people in the room you don't need to wait until the one day version of yourself happens to get serious about your faith no Jesus is calling to you to a serious faith right now and he is holding you to the same accountability that he is holding others right now so if you take teenage John and mature him like 60 or 70 years years you get to 95 AD and John has been banished because Domitian isn't stupid he knows that if he kills John that he would start a movement, that it would make it worse. It would be like killing Gandhi or MLK. You can't do that. And so he sends John to this beautiful island called Patmos and it's also a prison and he cannot leave there. And there are other prisoners there and brutal people. And so John basically lives in this, is, is in this cave and God, Jesus gives him a revelation and it's known as the cave of the revelation. Or the Revelation cave. And we can still see it today. And John tells believers of his day. He says I know this Demetian guy is terrible. But he says listen. There is a way to overcome an even greater enemy. There is an even greater enemy. We call the accuser. Who is the accuser? Satan. He is accusing us day and night. Before God's throne. And John says, uh, he tells the church, he says, hey, I know this Demetian guy is terrible, but he says there was an even greater battle that happened in the past. And he says, and you know how, or in the future, you know how the believers overcame was by three things. The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. Those are the three things we're going to look at today. How do we overcome this word overcome here? He says, they conquered him. It's this word Nikeo, which is where we get the word Nike. It's this idea of being victorious in battle. And it almost gives you the imagery of like holding the head of, of the enemy king and standing over his body. It's, it's you're standing over the devil victorious. How? He says, by the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? We know that Jesus is the lamb, but why do we know that? First Peter 1:19 says this. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus' blood was like that of a lamb. Revelation 13.8 says that uh, it refers to Jesus as the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And we're going to put this one up on the screen. But John one twenty nine says this. Now, John the Baptist is baptizing people into repentance Jesus says this is necessary. And uh, and so Jesus goes to be baptized. And when John. This is a different John by the way. John the Baptist. Not John the Revelator. John sees Jesus coming over the side. And he says behold the lamb. Who takes away the sin of the world. What is he talking about? Well listen. Every first century. Even moderately educated Jew. Would have known exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about two things. He was talking about. Passover, and he's talking about Yom Kippur, and every man, woman, and child would have known this so you, you uh, um, let's just back up to Exodus 12 and look at the Passover, the Passover is this other unprecedented moment in history it's this moment when this another evil ruler named Pharaoh has God's people enslaved and they've been there for 400 years and so what happens is God says Moses I want you to go as my servant and demand that he let my people go and Pharaoh says no and this should tell you how powerful Pharaoh is because after nine full innings uh, the score is still Pharaoh zero zero, god zero after plagues that would have destroyed the economy destroyed society and destroyed people's health and livelihood for years not just for a few weeks but for years and so god says i'm about to win this he says i'm about to send something terrible on the land and 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 i want my people to be protected and so what you're going to do is this you're going to take a lamb and you're going to kill it you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to smear it over the, the the doorpost and the crossbar of that home, and then you're going to the family's going to enter into the house, and you're going to shut the door. And, and as the angel of death comes and takes every firstborn, your house your, your your house will be passed over by the angel of death. You'll be delivered from death, and you'll and this this moment is actually going to take you guys out of Egypt into a kingdom. That's where you're headed. So you're out of death into a kingdom that's what Passover represents is deliverance from death Now the second thing it represents is Yom Kippur when he calls Jesus the Lamb. uh, Yom Kippur is once a year, Leviticus 16, when it's called the Day of Atonement. When your sins are atoned for, the priest would take two goats. He would kill one goat and and, and put specks of blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented Christ, obviously, because there's wood which represents Jesus' humanity and it's covered by pure gold which represents his deity. And as as he would do it seven times he would drop blood on the mercy seat and then he would take the, the rest of the blood and he would put it on the other goat and then they would drive it out of the city out of the camp as if their sin was being removed from them Their sin had been atoned for and removed from the camp. So you've got deliverance from death into a kingdom. And you've got the, the scapegoat. You've got deliverance from sin and redemption. You've got atonement for your sin. So you're like, why is he talking about all this religious stuff? Here's the deal. This is what he's saying. They're covered under the blood, which means they have given their lives to the lamb. They have entered into the kingdom under the blood. Are y'all following that? So my question is, have you come under the cross? Have you come under the cross? Have you given your life to Jesus? Was there a moment when you said, Jesus, you have my life. I was a part of the kingdom of darkness and dead in my trespasses and sins. I want to be alive and I want to give you my life. That's what the baptism earlier, the testimony was about, was there was a moment when she was dead in her sin and then Jesus, she gave her life to Jesus and Jesus saved her, not just from hell, but saved her into a relationship with him. So people in the room this morning, Have you come under the cross? If you haven't, you're unprotected. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, our sin has separated us from our God. But Romans in chapter 5 verse 8 says, man, um, this is God's demonstration of love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has made a way. You are separated from God. There's there's an impossible stretch between you and God. You would never make it across. No matter how many good works you have, no matter how many times you go to church, no matter what your list of good versus bad looks like, God doesn't take a scale and say, how many good works and bad works do you do? Because at the end of the day, oftentimes your good works are to make you feel better and to make you look good. Anything done apart from faith is, is, is sin. And so even your good works are like filthy rags people in the room this morning have you given your life to Jesus you need to do that this morning you have to do that this morning the 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 second thing that he says after have you come under the cross he says, the word of their testimony, they overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Now in Greek, this is logon tes which literally means, um, there really means two things. It means you're testifying in court to an event and also your life is telling a story. Logon means your life. It means your heart, mind, and soul. It's the same word that is used to describe Jesus. That term, when the, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it's talking about Jesus, the word. That's logos. This is the same root word, logon, which means your life is telling a story. But martyrius sounds like martyr. And the reason why is that's where the word comes from. It means you're testifying to an event. And so your life is telling a story. So, the, the way that the scripture says it in Acts 1 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, now, when I was growing up, that word witness, by the way, is martyrious. And when I was growing up and I heard that, I used to think, well, that means I need to memorize the Roman road and the sinner's prayer. And I I need to try to get people saved. Some of you old timers know know what I'm talking about. I'd go to RAs and my sisters would go to GAs, if y'all know what that stuff is. and, And I would learn about how to do that. Those things are good, but that's not what it's talking about. The word martyrias, the the, the idea of your, uh, the word of your testimony is the fact that your life is telling a story. Your life is telling a story. Everywhere you go, every person you interact with, every space that you dwell in, the people that you date and how you date them. Uh, uh, Your life on the road, how people cut you off, how do you respond to that? forgive me Lord I mean seriously like if I could take all of your snapchats and your deleted history on your phone and the TikTok videos that you linger on too long and, and all these different things and, and, and your, face, your political Facebook posts and put them all together and we could read them together what story does that tell? Your life, everything about you, your friendships, your worth ethics, your, your other relationships, your time at the store or the gas station, literally every place. Listen, I grew up in a little town called Paris, Texas. God bless Paris, Texas. And, and, and Paris, Texas is a tiny little town. And you could go there and, uh, and you could ask people if they know me. And some people might. They might say, yeah, I know Jordan McKinney. And I remember Jordan in high school, like he, he started this Bible study at our, at his house with people who didn't normally go to church. Like he crossed over social norms and got like the, the, the strange kids from the theater program and like the stars of the football team and, and like some weird people with him in choir. And like, we literally all got together and we were like friends. Like it was kind of weird, but we like, we studied the Bible together. Yeah. I know Jordan McKinney. He led me to Christ. He was, he was there for me when I needed him but there's also some people that you could find there very easily probably that I'm ashamed to say could say I know I know Jordan he wasn't there for me when I needed him he never emailed me back he never responded he, I needed him and he wasn't there he didn't pay his bill on time he was inconsistent he, he wasn't always the gentleman that he should have been and here's the reality is that your name is holy it's not just a title. When your name is spoken, it invokes the moments when your character has intersected someone else's life. And those are the memories that they think of. And that's that's what I mean when I say your name is, is holy. And so the question is, have you given God your name? Have you given God your story? Because here's the beauty of the gospel is that your story, follow this. Your story becomes history so that your story becomes his story. Your story becomes history so that his story becomes your story. You take on his name, your name. When people invoke your name, they remember things about you. Do they remember Christ or, or what else do they remember? Your attitude or or, um, or, or the way that you dated them or, or the, the way that you responded to them. Your life is always telling a story. And here's the reality is that you are saved by grace, but your God is seen by the world, by your life. You're saved by grace. But the world sees God through the way that you live. John Durham, I've heard him say it this way. Oftentimes the greatest apologetic for or against our faith is our name. Have you given God your name? And when I say that, I don't just mean your outward appearance. I'm not talking about whitewashed tombs. There there are some, some of us in here, actually, I would say all of us in here have a tiny little compartment. Like if you could go into the house that is you, you could go through the front door and check out all the rooms and then you see this little safe room in the back and then you open up that door and it goes down into a little basement and you could go through the basement at the back of that basement, there's a little trap door and you go down the trap door, down a little tunnel and around through the tunnel and then at the end of that tunnel, there's a little compartment down there, a little closet and it has sin and brokenness there that you don't even confront anymore because you are sick and tired of praying that God would help you get over it. There is brokenness. There are things that people have said to you that hurt you. Things that people have done to you that wounded you that you think you've laid to rest, but really there's this little compartment that you just have not given to God. God wants to bring inner healing to you. He wants your story, He wants your testimony. And there are things in your life that God can't shape and He can't mold. He won't do that. There's some things that need to be removed. John Owen said it this way. You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin is not something to be managed. It has to be removed. And and also I would say your hurt and your brokenness has to be removed. Have you really given God your name? The first one was, have you come under the blood? Have you really given your life to Jesus? The second one is, um, have you really given God your name? And the last one is this and we're going to be done. Have I lost you already? Are you with me? Okay, all right. It's almost lunchtime, so y'all better wake up. Here we go. So he says, uh, he, he says they did not love their lives even unto death, even if it cost them death. What is he talking about? Now, I'm, I'm under no illusion. I'm not up here to say, man, in America, things are getting so bad that you're going to start getting killed for your faith. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I think you will get bullied for your faith. But I, I don't think we're going to suffer death. But, but here's what I... Here's, here's the best way that I can apply it. Our ambitions, our opinions, and self-love must not become the passions of our life. As freeing as that sounds, that becomes like a religious yoke that we need to despise. No, the passion of your life needs to be the love of God and the love of people. Luke 10, 27 says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We live in a time that promotes self-love so much and I'm not promoting self-hate here there's not this weird dichotomy of either hate yourself or love yourself that's not what I'm talking about the scripture says it this way just deny yourself like it's not that you hate or love yourself you just deny yourself we live in a time that promotes focusing more on you I need more me time you do you there's a little truth bubble around your life and no one gets to speak into it and no one gets to speak into yours because that's your little truth bubble and that's where you get to stay safe That's your safe space. The key to overcoming depression and anxiety is to focus more on yourself and your needs. A.W. Tozer says it this way. These are called self-sins. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to even come to our attention until the light of God is focused on them. Now, on the other hand um we also live in a generation that loves social justice which by the way i think that's great i actually believe that the scripture has called social justice isn't a new thing as much as the culture would love for you to believe god has been bringing justice to the world for centuries actually since the beginning of time this has been god's mission it was supposed to be adam and eve's mission when they were supposed to take dominion over the world and to be caretakers over the garden temple but they missed it the reality is is That social justice, the church should be at the forefront of it. But listen, the problem with right now is that we love to try to divide goodness from God. And you cannot divide godliness from goodness. And when you do that, it loses its power. That's not my words, that's Paul's words uh, to Timothy, his disciple in in 2 Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says this, but understand this, Timothy, that the last days, In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. People will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's crazy. Uh, Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpleasable unpleasable, Uh, slanderous, without self-control, without self-control, don't we all have that? Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having, listen, here it is, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. See, this is a my kingdom mindset. This is a my kingdom mindset. And so John is asking us, what is the passion of your life? What is your highest ambition? What is the passion of your life? Where do your emotions get stirred up most deeply? Where do you get the, the most passion from? What do you get most into? Dads, have you sacrificed the discipleship of your children for your job or for your money or for golfing? Will we, church, will we sacrifice the truth of God's word for the sake of some false sense of peace to make people feel better? We do that to each other? It seems like freedom, but it's really slavery. And God came to set us free. Will we attach ourselves? Will we burn incense on the altar of our political agendas and candidates? Do our emotions get more stirred? Listen, I actually brought a a list of um, Facebook posts from some of you that I'd like to read this morning. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sweating too, I know. Um, <laughs> don't read mine. Um, I've deleted some. So, uh, and I think we all probably should, but the reality is is that God has called us out of our kingdoms, our little kingdoms that mean nothing, into his kingdom that means everything. So the best way that I can kind of end our time this morning is to show the contrast between these things. And, and, and I just need you to tune in and, and, and respond. My kingdom says, God, bless me. God's kingdom says, God, make me a blessing to other people. My kingdom says, I just need to love myself better. And God's kingdom says, deny yourself and consider the needs of others greater than yours. My kingdom says, I'm trying to be a good person because it makes me feel better and it helps people. And God's kingdom says I strive to be, uh, to to obey God because I love him and he loves me despite who I am. My kingdom says, I need a relationship to feel validated. And God's kingdom says, my validation is in heaven and not on the earth. My kingdom says, I am going to do what I want to do. And God's kingdom says, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. My kingdom says, my identity is in my gender identity or sexuality and God's kingdom says sexuality and gender is just a small piece of who I am so I'm going to submit that to what God's word says is right my kingdom says I have the right uh, I am right all the time and I never have to apologize even when I'm wrong and God's kingdom says I've been wrong before I'll be wrong again I'm going to be teachable God's kingdom says Jesus is a Republican Jesus is a Democrat Jesus is a socialist Jesus is a capitalist and the whole time God's going my kingdom is not of this world and it transcends time and space and leaders and economies and governments and and, and kingdoms. My kingdom, my kingdom says this I'm just going to worry about me and let the world spin out of control and God's kingdom says do justice and be ministers of reconciliation be peacemakers and not just peacekeepers my kingdom says Jesus is alive to help me feel better and do what I want and God's kingdom says I am alive to love and serve Jesus and obey what he asks me my kingdom says I'm going to hop around to different churches because this speaker's better or I like their t-shirts better or their design is cool or their band is awesome and God's kingdom says, "This is my church family. I'm not going anywhere, even if they suck. I am sticking around because this is my church family." My kingdom says, "Man, I wish I had more time to read my Bible and pray." God's kingdom says that boyfriend and basketballs are and good grades are fine, but King Jesus is not to be compared with. My kingdom says my voice must be heard, and I have to express my outrage and assume everyone else is evil. God's kingdom says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to outrage. My kingdom says my identity is in meeting other people's expectations of me. My friends, my culture, my parents. God's kingdom says my identity is in Jesus and I live for his expectations and I am held together by his grace and his kindness. And so those of you who are listening, whether it's online or in this room, I need to ask you these three questions. Have you given your life to Jesus truly? Really? It's not enough to just agree and be polite. Yes, I know Jesus died on the cross. That's great. Cool. What, what's next? What's next? No, this has to be something that you give your life to. Have you come under the cross? The second thing, have you given God your name? Some of you are saved, but you've never really given him your name and you're not living as a disciple and you're just kind of this surface level Christian and you're just trying to get out of hell and you don't care anything about your relationship with God and you don't care anything about changing the world and God has called you to so much more power than that. If your highest ambition in life is to build your kingdom, then you're gonna be small. Forever, But if you would put your life into his kingdom, then he will multiply it for eternity, not just for this life, but for the next. So have you given your life to Jesus? If you come under the cross, have you given God your name? And the last thing is, what is your highest ambition? Do you live for his kingdom or do you live for your kingdom? This needs to be a time of repentance for me. You cannot preach a sermon like this. I, I mean, I just, I don't know, I, maybe none of you can relate to this. I was basically just wrote a sermon to myself and I was like, well, here, here's where all the places that you need, to, <laughs> you need to go with God. And so I was hoping that some of that might hit you, but I know for me, I can't leave God's word where it is because God's word won't leave you where you're at. You need to be dealt with this morning and you need to deal with him. If you're five, if you're 55 or you're 95, this word is for you and repentance is for you. I remember my granddad had been in ministry for 60 years and he was dying on his deathbed. And I remember saying, granddad, what it, what, 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 give me some advice. I mean, you're, you're, you're about to be gone and I don't want you to go and I need advice from you. What do I do? And he said, the two most important things that I can tell you is share Christ with everyone that you can. And the second thing, he said, never stop repenting. He'd been in ministry for 60 years and had been married for longer than that to the same person and was faithful. And I saw him die to himself over and over and over. And he, he was like the most perfect person that I could imagine. And he was telling me, never stop repenting. This morning, there needs to be some kind, can we repent together this morning? Can we come under the blood this morning? Can we give God our name this morning? and can we make him our highest ambition because some of us some of us have given God our lives and some of us have given God our name but we're still about our little kingdom we make disciples we're active in the church we give a lot of tithe money and we go on mission trips and you're an all-star Christian by all get out but but, but the reality is is that you're still trying to build your little kingdom and we need to realize that it's about him and it's not about us and that's tough that's really hard to let go of because we are selfish people from birth my son my two sons as sweet as they are they never contribute anything they don't make any money Levi never asks to change his own diaper Jacob doesn't have a job yet He's five, apparently there are laws against that. And the reality is, is that they don't contribute anything. And listen, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And unless you become like one of these little children who is needy and broken, you are not worthy of God's kingdom we do that together this morning the band's gonna come out and sing and if listen if you need to skip lunch with your family and just go find a park and say like there's some things that have to be healed in me there's some i need to talk with someone about giving my life to christ if there's something in you that needs to be dealt with like it is not worth forgetting because you just do the church thing and you come in here and you hear another sermon and you sing some more songs and you say some prayers and you just go do your sunday thing and then off to monday and it's like oh yeah i think that sermon was good i don't remember anything about it but it was nice Like, can we be changed by God's word today? Maybe I'm just speaking to myself or maybe some of you can relate to that. But let's stand and worship God together. Let's stand and let's take some time to repent together. But whatever it is, let's do that together. Let me pray for you. God, this is your time. We are your people. Would you save in this moment? Would you convict and clean in this moment? And would you just draw us near and show us how much you love us in this moment? In Jesus' powerful name, amen.